my, my, my. Welcome to another episode of The Optimistic Advocate. This is episode eight, and I'm your host, Scott Bryant Comstock, founder of the Children's Mental Health Network. And I tell you, just another great show today. This podcast is about advocates who are innovative, advocates who refuse to sit on the sidelines and they just figure out a way to get it done. But, you know, it's not only about what these advocates do. It's about who they are as people, what makes them tick. That really gets at the essence of what the Optimistic Advocate podcast is all about. And today, I'm very, very excited to have as my guest, Melissa Heatley. Melissa is a clinical child psychologist. She coordinates school-based initiatives with Pediatric Behavioral Health and Wellness at UR Medicine, which provides comprehensive school-based behavioral health services, consultation, and training to youth and educators across the greater Rochester region. That's Rochester, New York, upstate New York. And what's special about Melissa? Well, there's many things that are special about Melissa, but one of the things that intrigues me is that her work, what she's about, it includes increasing access to evidence-based mental health for youth and families. So what does that mean? What all of that means is that she's a true community organizer working through the lens of behavioral health. And in this time of pandemic, I don't know that there are many people more important than those who are trying to figure out, along with multitudes of other people in their community, how to make sure that services stay at the level that they were before the pandemic for youth and families, and maybe how they can be improved. Now, Melissa wrote in to the Children's Mental Health Network mid-March was right as things really were taken off with the pandemic and the realization had already hit that things are going to be very different. They already were closing the schools and just a lot going on. And she wrote in to the network to say, hey, yes, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Yes, there's a lot going on, but we're adapting. We're figuring out to the best of our ability how to make things work for families here in the greater Rochester area. And I was really intrigued. So we had her on to do a podcast. It was great. Great interview. Got put in the queue. Weeks went by, (laughs) which is my fault. Sorry, listeners. And when it came time to run her episode, I thought, oh my God. I mean, the world's changed 17 times since I interviewed Melissa. So I called her back. And I said, Melissa, would you be willing to do another interview? This will be an updated interview. She graciously agreed. So we did an updated interview in late July. Well, we're already two weeks into August. So just know that some of the things she talks about, some of the decisions that were about to be made about schools and when they would open and what they would look like, hey, all bets are off. That may look different. But this will give you a nice point-in-time snapshot of a very innovative, forward-thinking advocate on behalf of children and families uh, who's making a difference in the community. Very, very excited about this interview. So, hey, I, I think we ought to get started. 
All right, let's get to it. Weeks ago, you were beginning to implement strategies for making sure that you still could effectively serve families in a very different way. Three, four months into this, where do things stand and how are you and the people who work for you approaching this? Since we talked back in April, the world has continued to change at this extraordinarily rapid pace. And at the same time, so many things are, are the same. We are still largely at home. We are still largely delivering many of our services via telehealth. We are still trying to figure out the next steps when it comes to reentering schools and patient care. And many people are still really working hard to balance childcare with working full-time, including myself. I have a two-year-old. And so a lot of things are the same. And also a lot of things are pretty different. And one is that we've become uh, much more proficient at using telehealth to deliver services for our kids and families. Two, we are having really important conversations around equity and access to mental health and to education uh, for kids and families, which is just so critical as we start to think about how do we re-engage kids and families in September when they're coming back to school. And I really believe technology can be a way to bridge some of those gaps. And three, because of the pandemic, over the past couple months, I've seen our community rally together and initiate joint collaborative partnerships across disciplines and across systems in ways that I have never seen done before in our community. And in many ways, things are are the same, but in many ways, we are seeing movements and progress and opportunity in ways that I think would have taken almost a decade to accomplish that many people have been trying to do for de- for a decade or longer. Let's unpack that. So what is the decision at this point for when the schools will reopen and, and how your teams will be integrated into that? So New York State has, we've gone through quite a process when it comes to COVID rates and has done a really nice job in getting infection rates more under control than in some other parts of the country. And because of that, we have some options. And we're starting to eye what September will look like with guidance from the state government, Cuomo. And schools this week are actually putting out plans for families to respond to. And by July 31st, we'll have their plans either approved or denied by the state. And so as we talk, things are still in quite a bit of flux, although it does look like many of the districts in our area are moving towards a hybrid model where kids will be in school for two to three days throughout the week and then two to three days learning at home and learning in cohorts and staggering their time. Some select districts in our area are sending elementary kids back to school full time But the vast majority are looking at this hybrid model. Melissa, without a pandemic, describe to us how your planning would be in July, what it would look like, how you would be getting ready, and what kinds of integration efforts would you be doing in the schools? I just want to get a sense of how it used to work, and then I want you to tease out how you've had to adapt. Yeah, so pre-pandemic, July is actually quite a quiet time for us. It's a time to breathe take stock as where we were last year and move forward with community partnering and planning for next year. 
We would be setting training dates on the calendar. We'd be doing some summer workshops and summer trainings with school staff. And we would be looking at our progress from the past year and, and trying to do some writing on, on the work that we did. When I look at this year, things are so in flux and there's so much planning happening that we are having to be much more active and nimble in our planning for next year. It's almost like agreeing to plan without a plan. So we have a, a general guiding star that we would like to continue to help schools increase their capacity to address kids' behavioral health challenges, of which there's going to be many upon reentering school. We also would like to continue helping expand access to child behavioral health services to kids and families who struggle to access that care. And at the same time, our method of de delivery and our topics and our ways of supporting the school are going to be much more responsive to current events and the current climate than they might have needed to be in the past. So instead of saying, uh, we're going to do a training on what is ADHD and Mental Health 101, we are um, hosting community town halls on how to talk to your kids about reentering school. We are hosting educator trainings on how to connect to kids in a virtual world. We're also creating community resources around child behavioral health services that are open during COVID-19 and how to access them. And this work is happening at a rapid pace. So in many ways, it's giving us less time to plan, but it's also helping us be much more timely and responsive to the current need right now. How, because I know there are people listening going, geez, we, we can't do that. Things got to get approved. How did you, how do I ask the question? It's not a permission question, but obviously y'all said, okay, new plan, let's go. So I'll tell you what's happened in our community. We know that COVID-19 related school closures have affected a huge number of youth and families. And there is a, a large community consensus and joint concern about the adverse mental health consequences of this. And knowledge that our usual modes of early identification and support and family-focused care just aren't available to us. And so members of our community with representatives from a really diverse array of pediatrics and social and emotional health and educational community organizations have come together of their own volition and in their own time to really join hands and collaboratively support kids and families during this time. This work has been, is being accomplished because we are partnering across UR Medicine, Golisano Children's Hospital, with our Monroe County Board of Cooperative Education Services, with our um, partner hospital across town, Rochester Regional Health, with other organizations like the Children's Institute and Accountable Health Partners, which is a large pediatric primary care organization in Rochester, the Monroe County Office of Mental Health. A massive number of community agencies and organizations have really come together and said, we need to do this collectively. There, you can't just have one person who does this. Now, this is our collective mission and our collective goal. And that's how this work is getting done. So let me ask you, because we like to focus not only on the, the sort of the meta level picture of what's going on, but also on the, in this case, on the personal, the micro level, the, the Melissa Heatley who wakes up one morning and here we are, we're in the midst of a pandemic. 
was there a shift that you had to make in your own thinking about how business gets done? Because you mentioned all these partners and it sounds like people are really rallying, which is wonderful. That's a great question. Our community as a whole has largely been partner oriented. And so there's always been a desire for people to reach across towns and across agencies and across systems. And personally, that's really what my career is focused on, is how do we help systems collaborate together to support kids' behavioral health needs and place the kids at the center instead of the organizations. Personally, what this pandemic has bought us is both time in that um, school's not in session, and so I'm not providing the direct service in schools in the same way I was. So I had a little bit more time in that area, but also a collective sense of urgency of we got to get this done now and everybody and consensus around the sense of urgency that we have. And it's hard to build consensus. Even when we all agree that kids need care, how we do that is difficult to reach agreement on. But COVID-19 simplified things in some ways. They said, kids need care now. Traditional modes of accessing care have been massively disrupted, and we got to do it new ways. Let's work together and figure out how to do that. So if you were coaching someone in a similar position as you, put on your coach hat, what would you tell them to look for? What would you tell them to pay attention to? Because I I really want to tease out how people in positions of leadership are behaving differently what would you advise somebody to do? So I was actually very lucky that I had a, a colleague who tapped me early on in April and said, we want you to bring people together uh, to talk about what we should do. And the first thing that we did was, or that I did, um, was email as many collaborators in our community who focus on kids' behavioral health and school systems as I could possibly think of. And then I suggested that they do the same. And from there, we ended up with a work group of about 30 different professionals and met weekly for, well, through April through June. And we had a common mission, which was improving screening and early identification, training and coaching to support kids' behavioral health and connection across systems in support of kids' behavioral health. So that was our common, like, guiding Northern Star. But then it was a lot of listening. It was a lot of letting the group think about what that meant and how to accomplish that work. I could not go in there as the expert because frankly, I'm not the expert in how pediatrics runs and I'm not the expert in how schools run. I mean, I'm the expert in my own system, but even within my own system of school mental health, we have other experts in town who do the same work and do it very well. And so you have to go in with quite a lot of humility and openness and invitation for people to offer ideas. You have to give them the time and space to express those ideas, and then you have to seriously consider them. And even when the feedback is difficult, you then have to take it and say, what am I going to do with this difficult feedback? How am I going to incorporate that into this work? Because it is valid, difficult feedback. And that is all part of the process of developing really effective community collaborations across these different disciplines, you got to let go of your ego and you have to let go almost of your own organization and say, we are all one thing and we all have a common goal. And think about that common goal and that guiding Northern star 
of your mission to support kids during this very difficult time. And if you let that fall away and you really are open, then you're able to actually generate some really creative ideas that would have been very difficult to to get if you weren't able to be so open. Is there anything that you had to do or continue to do on an ongoing basis with those above you in the leadership ranks, whether it's your board or senior executive, I don't know how you're structured, but is, is there, what do you do to help bring them along as well? Because the things you're talking about, and like you said, are things that could take 10 years to, to develop. You're radically changing the paradigm, even though we all talk about collaboration, right? But uh, we always run into the issues of siloed thinking and, and you're like busting that wide open. Well, we're trying, we're trying. So I'm on faculty at an academic medical center in the, in the Department of Psychiatry. And our division has always been very focused on cross-system collaboration and integrated care and really thinking about how to, how to break down some of these silos and barriers. So that's part of the embedded mission statement okay. of our department, which helps. And I have some very supportive leadership at the senior level who give us the latitude, give me the latitude to run with things that are going to affect change. And also, we have been fortunate to have funders in our community, including the Greater Rochester Health Foundation and others who have supported cross-sector collaboration and work really focusing on enhancing community partnerships. We actually had a grant before the pandemic focused on helping schools effectively support kids with behavioral health needs as they move across systems, Mm. which has become very necessary now. And so much of this work was in the pipes before we started. And this really, the the pandemic just really provided the gas, the opportunity to put our our foot on the gas. And again, that sense of consensus that we got to do this now. And also because of, this is part of the departmental mission at the, the Department of Psychiatry at U of R, I've been able to have access to a little bit of extra time if I need it. And that protected time has been very helpful. So with September approaching, and who knows if if that will be the month that things kick back into gear for the schools, what are you most excited about in terms of what you can offer and what has your radar on high alert? Yeah. So I'm very excited about the the cross-sector and cross-system partnerships that we've been developing while school is out. So one is the Connecting for Kids work group that we've been working through our community with a, a huge number of community partners, linking education, pediatrics, behavioral health, um, education around kids' social and emotional health. And one of the things that we are offering in August is a evening of collaborative dialogue and brainstorming, really focusing on enhancing networking, collaboration, communication between schools and pediatric primary care practices. We're doing it with those two sectors first as a pilot because those are really the universal points of contact for kids. And because our you know, traditional modes of communication and early identification are so disrupted, we really got to tighten those linkages. And so we're offering a semi-structured um, interview and guided collaborative conversation between these primary care pediatric practices and affiliated schools that feed into those practices. Is, is that like a Zoom? Yeah, we're going to be doing it over Zoom. So Zoom has offered us the opportunity to bring people together 
that typically would have a hard time getting together in a, in a conference room. What are you hearing from pediatricians? I, I, I think, by the way, I just think that's a fabulous idea. That is so pediatricians are such the missing link so often in these conversations. Well, and pediatricians are often the first people that families go to when they have concerns about their kids' behavioral health. And schools are often the primary providers of behavioral health services. So these two systems really need to be connecting better together. Yeah, yes. And again, the the focus for this... uh, for this guide, you called it a guided. Sir, it's a, this is a, a guided collaborative conversation, an evening of collaborative dialogue and brainstorming, really focused on enhancing communication between those different systems. And what's the goal? The goal is to develop a shared, that shared mission and shared understanding of what they do well already to coll- in collaboration in support of kids' behavioral health but also some direction for improving their collaboration. So there'll be a component to this, which is action planning between the, between the systems and saying what would be helpful in changing our individual systems to improve this communication and collaboration. We're also pairing this with, with a Connecting for Kids COVID-19 Practice Guide, which is a rich aggregation of our community's best tools and resources and recommendations for supporting collaboration during COVID-19. Um, And that's going to include liaison contacts at participating schools and districts and pediatric practices. So you actually know who to call if you have concerns. Um, Also, early identification tools, resources, and recommendations. There is a a wonderful group in town called the Collaborative Care Through Communication Work Group uh, that's led by Jim Wallace and Bill Hurley. And they have developed a collaborative communication tool Um, that helps facilitate communication between schools and medical settings that we're including in that practice guide, along with some um, tip sheets from the Children's Institute and other organizations around promoting social and emotional health when returning to school and fostering parent partnerships in education and healthcare, and also work on how do we understand and address racism and how it impacts kids, students, and families in, in these different areas. And our community county mental health organization has contributed lists of uh, their services that are accessible during COVID-19. And we have also created an aggregation of community resources um, that are available during COVID-19 that's updated monthly right now. This is going to be both this opportunity to have a collaborative conversation, but also access a really rich practice guide. Uh, that we're hoping will be housed on a community resource hub that's being developed as part of another task force called the Reopening School Safely Task Force and will be available community-wide. So again, this is all community building and we have all of this engine work because we have so many people working on this. This sounds so exciting, but I got to ask, any evaluation component to this? The last two minutes you have just dropped several <laughs> that I want to go, oh, oh, if we ever get back to Tampa, you better be reporting on this. <laughs> yeah, we are, we're collaborating with the Children's Institute for some program evaluation initiatives as part of this. And again, I, I can't do all this by myself. This is, so this is, again, because we have a community part, because we have community partnerships, we're able to tap the organizations in town who have the capacity to do this and do this really well. 
right now. So that's the exciting, and it is exciting, but those are the things that are making you go, this is great. What are the things that are on your radar that are maybe giving you some warning signs? Yeah, so I think returning to school is, is scary for a lot of people and validly there is a lot of uncertainty in terms of how do we protect the health and, and wellness of our kids, of our educators, of our clinicians and staff. How do we also at the same time provide educational and childcare services to kids who are really at risk of falling behind even more? I have a lot of worry about disproportionate impacts of COVID on people of color, on kids of color, and communities who are more vulnerable, who, who maybe don't have access to alternative childcare arrangements or the ability to pay for additional childcare. And so I have a lot of concerns that from, a, from an organizational standpoint, it, it can get overwhelming to think about how many different decisions need to be made. And it often feels like there aren't any great decisions. Yeah, yeah. And great choices. So how does Melissa take care of herself in all this? Because I'm telling you, it has been a consistent theme. People will get on and they'll talk about really incredibly wonderful and exciting things they're doing. But the whole issue of self-care has been a constant theme. And, I, and I'm just curious if you're willing to share how, how you tackle that, how your colleagues are tackling that. Yeah. So I have a two-year-old, I have a family and my, for the first three months of the pandemic, March through July, we were splitting childcare at home full-time while also working full-time. Wow. And that's a lot because two-year-olds aren't really old enough to self-entertain. And at the same time, it offered the opportunity to uh, radically accept the fact that she needed some direct adult attention and say, instead of trying to do it all, I'm going to take her to the beach. And we have up in upstate New York, we have beautiful lakes and beautiful rivers and beautiful beaches on Lake Ontario that at eight in the morning, when a two-year-old is awake, are completely empty. And so we would often take her to the beach early in the morning and play in the sand and wade a little bit and throw some rocks in so throw some rocks in Lake Ontario and try very hard to be mindful and in the moment so that when we it was time to go back to work, we were able to be efficient and refreshed. It's been challenging and it's also been really a wonderful time to connect with, my, with our family in ways that I, I think I'm going to look back on and be really happy that we had the opportunity to focus so much on each other. I've talked to you twice now and, and both times I just, I feel like I'm in my own therapy session. I just come away feeling <laughs> like this, and I mean this with great sincerity, you have such a, I don't know, just... What? Equilibrium setting spirit. How about that? That's one I haven't quite heard before, but yeah, that's really special. That's, and I Thank think you. that's helpful for people to hear, whether you have a beach at Lake Ontario or not. It's, but the, that whole idea of saying, I don't have to do it all. You can't do it all. And this is not to say that it's been easy. It's been really very sure. difficult a lot of times. And I struggle with not being able to do it all. But I definitely struggle with saying no to things. It's really hard with given the amount of urgency in our community 
to say I have to prioritize certain things. And, and that has led to a lot of stress and a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of worry. And we try very hard in our family to keep our family as our, as our guiding northern star. And at the end of the day, family gets to be the priority and they get to come first. And so if that means I need to say no to something at work to make sure that we have that balance in our family, then we do that. But it's very difficult, and especially given the urgency in our community right now. People don't realize every one of us has gifts and wisdom to share. And it's just really nice to hear that because that's going to help somebody while they're cleaning mm. their refrigerator, listening to this or uh, mowing <laughs> the lawn or whatever. That's very special. Well, let's finish with, with our favorite question, our Zoom question. You could have a Zoom call with anyone living or dead. Who would it be and why? Oh my gosh. I feel like I need a week to prepare for that question. Ah. Oh. I would have a Zoom call. Anyone living or dead, frankly, would be my grandmother, who I was very close with and had just a, a very, very intimate relationship with. And I see my I see my daughter and how she loves her grandmothers. And I wish I could share that with my grandmother because it reminds me so much of, of our relationship. So it's funny. I think about that and I'm like, should I, should I have that call with someone who I care about professionally or personally or, but, but for me, it's a no brainer. It's my grandmother who really taught me a lot about who I am um, and what I love. Beautiful. Melissa Heatley, thank you for spending time with us and, and sharing some of the really wonderful things happening in upstate New York, but uh, more importantly, sharing some of yourself. I think that's a gift that will be shared widely. So much appreciated. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Melissa Heatley, thank you so very, very much. What I tell you, folks, not only is Melissa an incredible clinician and Rochester's lucky to have her, she's also a great advocate for youth and families and, and a great champion for bringing the community together, something that's really wonderful to see. All right. Well, that's it. Another episode in the books for the Optimistic Advocate. Hey, now listen, subscribe to the podcast and you won't miss a single episode. Tell your friends. And if you've got thoughts on who would be a great advocate for us to interview, well, drop us a note. You can learn a little bit more about Melissa Heatley in the show notes. All right, folks, this is a wrap. See you next time.